My name is Alexi Chanzi Antonio. That is actually my real last name, Chanzi Antonio. It's kind of like a gazuntite, you just gotta sneeze it out, you know? Chanzi Antonio. Uh, it's Greek, it's long, it's a little bit odd, um, but there you have it. I am a student at Regent College and have been for two years, which is the same amount of time that my wife Jessica and I, as with our two boys, we've got a four-year-old Jack and now an eight-month-old Charlie. We've been coming to St. Peter's for two years, the entire time that we've been at St. Peter's. In fact, we had a, a list of churches that we wanted to go to, and St. Peter's was our, our, the first choice that we had, and we were going to check out all these other ones afterwards. And we came to St. Peter's on our first weekend in Vancouver when we moved here from Winnipeg in central Canada. And um, so we came here first, and we were going to go to all these other ones afterwards, and we've never left. Uh, we never went to any other ones, didn't go to their second or third choice or anything like that. Here we are, and now here I am preaching to you. Uh, so as I said, I'm a, a student at Regent, and I study uh, the New Testament, mainly focusing on Paul, uh, wanting to specialize on Pauline literature in the future. Um, but I'm preaching to you this morning from the book of Revelation, which is very different from Paul and very different from just a whole lot of other things that we find in the New Testament. Um, but still, I have a fascination with the book, or at least I, I certainly have in the past. Um, uh, one sh little anecdote right here, and then we're going to get into this. My, my wife and I, and this was years ago, when we were, I think, first married, so about seven years ago, um, we were both so intrigued by the book of Revelation that we, what we did was we read the entire book of Revelation, 22 chapters, every week for two years straight. So 22, the entire book of Revelation every week for two years straight, um, plus other things. That's not, that's not all we did. You know, we worked and we did other things too. Um, but there you have it. So focusing on Paul, focusing on New Testament, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but the book of Revelation has a certain strange place in, in my own heart, and hence speaking about it. But the book of Revelation isn't the sort of book that Jessica and I read to Jack before he goes to bed. It's not the sort of book that you would reach to when you know, talking to children. And it's not usually the book that you would go to first in a discussion with an irreligious friend uh, who might be exploring Christianity for the first or maybe even the second or third or fourth time. It's not your go-to um, book, typically. It is filled with all the familiar sort of stuff of fairy tales and fantasies. There are dragons and monsters and crystal cities with magical trees. There's heroes with the power to shoot fire at their enemies, comes through their mouth. And there's heroines who sprout wings and take flight. None of that would sound all too bizarre to young or even irreligious ears that have read a few good books or watched a few interesting movies. But Revelation is tinged with a darker side to it that we're a lot less comfortable with, especially less comfortable with when we find it in the Bible. It's one thing when you watch a movie that has a little bit, you know, fantastical things going on, or you read a book and it has some interesting things going on. Um, but when you put it into the Bible, um, that's when it starts getting a little like, okay, I'm not really enjoying this anymore. I don't really know what to do with this anymore. Uh, you can't just sit back and, and take it in like you do something like a book or a movie. If we were to compare it to fairy tales, like we said before, it's like fairy tales or fantasies, we'd need to be thinking more along the lines of the Brothers Grimm rather than Walt Disney. The dragon tries to eat a baby 
That happens in the book. One of the monsters is ridden by a prostitute who is drinking the blood of killed Christians. That happens in the book. Um, there's one point where 100-pound hailstones fall from the heavens and crush people. Uh, and at one point in the book, a particularly lovely scene where there is a river of blood which is said to flow five feet deep by almost 200 miles long. So what I'm trying to say is that if Revelation were a TV show, it would be on HBO. It's that sort of thing. <laughs> but the book isn't merely dark and disturbing. It's really, frankly, confusing, too. And at least part of the reason why we don't turn to it when, we, you know, when we're talking to our kids about this sort of thing or when we're talking to irreligious friends about this sort of thing is because, quite frankly, it's not the book that we ourselves would want to hear or read about um, in our own time. We just don't know what to do with it, if we're honest with ourselves. And at least part of the reason why we don't know what to do with it is because people have done really weird things with this book in the past that we just want nothing to do with. The book of Revelation has been used, or I think we should say misused, to justify religious holy war. The book of Revelation has been used, as I'm sure many of us know, to predict the end of the world down to the very time on the very day, only to be reused the day after, after that date has come and gone. It's also been used to promote a kind of Christian escapism from real global issues like slavery, gender inequality, pollution, climate change, and so on. And nearly worst of all, it's been used to burden this already weary world with low-budget Christian movies with Kirk Cameron, and now more recently, the, the critically elusive Nicolas Cage himself. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, a very witty British essayist, novelist, and literary critic, had it right when he said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Yes, John certainly did see many strange sights. But yes, it's also true, many of the interpretations of those sights have been even stranger. So we, we might think it odd, for instance, when John describes a swarm of locusts with men's faces and women's hair and lion's teeth and a scorpion's tail coming out of the smoke that billows from the bottomless pit. We think that's a little odd. But I think we can all agree it takes a similar sort of strangeness to interpret that as actually referring to military-grade helicopters, you know, the ones with like the, the face and the teeth painted on them, you know, the ones I'm talking about, from like Black Hawk Down and stuff like that. Uh, it takes a similar sort of strangeness to think that that's really what's happening and that, that a first century uh, fisherman type Christian just misunderstood it. All of this, the, the, the confusing nature of the book, the disturbing nature of the book, the, the mature nature of the book, should lead us, I think, to ask these sorts of questions. Like, what sort of book is Revelation in the first place? What are we even getting ourselves into? How should we read the book of Revelation? And possibly most of all, what on earth should we do with all the bizarre imagery and, and the strange language? What do we make of that? In his preface to John Milton's famous poem, Paradise Lost, C.S. Lewis presses the importance of these sorts of points, these sorts of questions, with characteristic clarity. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is. 
what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for bad purpose, and the communist may think the same about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was made for opening tins and the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. The first thing the reader needs to know about Paradise Lost is what Milton meant it to be. And in the same way, I'd like to suggest to you that the first thing that we need to know about the book of Revelation is what St. John meant it to be. Only then will we be able to understand the purpose for what he says and what he sees. Historians and literary critics alike have long identified the book of Revelation with a popular genre of literature in the ancient world that has come to be called apocalyptic. So the same word you know, we get from apocalypse from, the apocalypse of St. John. This is apocalyptic literature. And properly understanding what apocalyptic isn't is nearly as important as understanding what it is. Apocalyptic literature is not, contrary to popular belief, about the end of the world as we know it. That's just not what it's about. Apocalyptic is not about the final cosmic collapse of the space-time continuum or whatever. And maybe most importantly, at least for our purposes this morning, apocalyptic literature is not intended to be read literalistically. As if, you know, we, we really are supposed to think that St. John really did think that at the end of the world, at the end of all things, there was going to be this dragon that was going after that one baby. Most leading scholars on the topic now agree that apocalyptic literature is, and I quote, a comp, this is a bit of a mouthful, so you'll pay attention closely. Apocalyptic is complex is a complex metaphor system that invests this worldly historical realities with what is perceived to be their full theological significance. Apocalyptic literature is a complex metaphor system that invests this worldly historical, that space-time reality with what is perceived to be their full theological significance. So we're talking about real events, real people, real places are being charged with vibrant otherworldly symbols and pictures, images, in order to communicate something realer about them than what meets the eye. In other words, apocalyptic transforms the world into a newer, truer version of itself. It doesn't change the world into something that it's not. It provides a new way to see the world as it really is. It purges and then refurbishes the imagination with an alternate vision of what really lies behind life as we think that we know it. Creating for us and then offering to us what scholars have called a new symbolic world. A new symbolic world. It's, it's, it's a world of symbols that reconstitutes, it puts back together our own concrete day-to-day, -day, you know, usually mundane world around biblical symbols and cultural associations 
that usually stand over and against dominant counter-images and competing ideologies of the day. This is what good fine art typically does. This is what good fiction very often does. And it's what some good movies typically do. It's what political cartoons try to do. It's what The Simpsons tries to do. It's what Banksy tries to do. It provides a different way of looking at what we are looking at by presenting it as something that it technically isn't in order to show what it really truly is. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again. It, it provides a different way of looking at what we're looking at by presenting it as something that it technically isn't, but that turns out to be realer and truer, truer than what it really is, or what it looks to be. This is why all the bizarre apocalyptic stuff actually matters, and why it's emphatically not this sort of abstract, pie-in-the-sky, scholarly theologizing that doesn't actually go anywhere in real life. Apocalyptic is all about real life. It's all about showing it for what it really is. So, John looks at an empire that has inhumane and dehumanizing policies and practices, and he sees a monster. He looks at a corrupt economic system in his day that preys on the weak to the benefit of the strong, and he sees a prostitute getting drunk on the blood of social minorities and who is sleeping with kings. But what does St. John, this is our question for this morning, what does St. John see when he looks at Jesus? That's the question. How, if you were to take Jesus, the, the, the crucified and risen Jesus, and kind of dip him into this strange new symbolic world and then pop him back out, uh, uh, what would he look like? What would the real, true, fuller, theological significance of all of that be? That's the question. That's what, that's what John is doing. That's how we should be reading these sorts of strange and bizarre images that are frankly a little disturbing and uncomfortable at times. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to be discussing. So, to our text, the passage begins, this is Revelation 1, starting at verse 9. Uh, we, we read from verse 12, um, but we're starting at verse 9 to set the context here. The passage begins with John on a small island, 35 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, where political prisoners were regularly kept by Roman authorities. Let's read it together. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So far, so good. Nothing too strange, nothing too out of the ordinary. But there are a few pretty interesting details in this text to point out. But, but for the sake of time, we're only going to note the most, the most important for, for what we're getting into. So first off, John says that he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This almost certainly means that John was temporarily exiled to Patmos, to the island of Patmos, by Roman authorities as punishment for some sort of political disruption caused by his preaching. A political disruption caused by his preaching. He then says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Those are two 
kind of strange uh, uh, terms in the spirit on the Lord's day. The, the first one in the spirit very likely means that he was simply in a posture of worship and prayer. And the Lord's day is, is very likely what early Christians called Sunday. And they called Sunday the Lord's day because Sunday was observed as, as the day that Jesus rose from the dead, thus vindicating him and revealing him to be the messianic Lord of the world. It's his day. It's Jesus's day as the Lord, Sunday. Next, John hears a loud, a trumpeting voice coming from behind him, commissioning him to write down what he sees and then send it to seven local church communities in seven major cities throughout Asia Minor. But when, G when John turns around and actually faces the one that's speaking to him, what he sees comes as a shock, or at least it probably, probably would have come as a shock, probably should to us as well. Let's read the text, what he says in verse 12 of Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. The voice. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Like how cryptic can you get? One like a son of man. Not quite a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters or of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. We are now in full-blown apocalyptic mode. A second ago, we were with John on Patmos. Things were pretty normal. We have weird words like, you know, in the spirit and stuff like that, but pretty normal. Now we are fully immersed in a rich symbolic world thick with overlapping and multi-layered biblical images from Daniel, from Ezekiel, from Exodus, from Zechariah, Judges, and so on. I mean, this is, this is just ripe with biblical texts, dripping biblical texts. If you'd cut the passage, the Old Testament would just, you know, come out. <laughs> and there's a lot of things going on here, and there's a lot of images to consider and to catalog, way too many to actually discuss um, in one short morning. But at least one scholar, a widely esteemed Oxford scholar, George Caird, said that trying to catalog each image in this text separately, individually on its own, is like trying to unweave a rainbow. The point of the passage isn't its individual colors, but the enchanting impact of the whole. So we're all right here to try to get a feel for the whole rather than its parts, which is what we're going to be doing. And yet still, I can't help but point out, notice the subtlety of the images. In verse 10, John said that he heard a voice. But then now in verse 12, he says that he turns around to see a voice that was speaking to him. How do you see a voice? It doesn't say, that it, this isn't like, you know, a, a, a scribal error or something like that. Uh, it's, he turned around to see the voice, not the one who was speaking to him, not the one that the voice was coming out of or whatever, to see a voice. It sounds strange, but this is actually common currency in apocalyptic literature. You, 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 see, uh, you see sounds, those sorts of things. That, that happens a lot. You hear sights and see sounds. 
And yet, to add to the puzzle, when, when John, I keep on saying Paul, when John turns around to see the voice, he doesn't even see a voice. What he sees instead are seven golden lampstands with one like a son of man in their midst. What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, what? At least that's how I feel when, when I read this sort of text. But before we should get too confused too quickly, I'm, I really should point out to you that John actually gives us a freebie with this one. In late, later on in verse 20, John is told that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches mentioned earlier. He's just told that flat out. Um, the, the, the Son of Man figure is like, hey, John, like the seven lampstands, those are the seven churches. He just tells them flat out. Uh, and also the Son of Man figure himself says this about himself in verses tw- uh, 17 to 18. He says he is the first and the last, the living one, the one who died, but who is alive forevermore. That should probably sound familiar. This is Jesus. The, the, the one like a Son of Man is is very clearly Jesus. But specifically, the Son of Man is the crucified, the one who died, and the risen, the one who's alive forevermore, Jesus. This is the crucified and risen Jesus that we're looking at here, but just dripping in this apocalyptic language. What do we make of that? The surprising point that, that John is making out of all this is actually a comforting one. It's a pastoral one. The point is that the resurrected Jesus is present with his people. But John makes that point in, visually, in a visually provocative way. But the description of Jesus as one like a son of man itself, that, that picture, that, that kind of language, is biblically loaded. It's, and, and the already dense biblical language only becomes further charged with theological significance as the rest of the visionary portrait of Jesus is painted. In fact... To get a proper understanding of Revelation 1, we really need to have a proper understanding of Daniel 7, because this whole picture is all about, it's, it's about uh, uh, describing what the Son of Man looks like. When you're reading, you know, he's got the, um, the, the, the bronze feet and the fiery eyes, all those sorts of things. All of that is describing the Son of Man. So we really need to get this piece in particular uh, together if we want to get that whole rainbow experience. To describe Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, as one like a son of man is virtually the same as saying that he's like a human being. That's how the Aramaic works, which is very likely where this is coming from. It's how the Hebrew works, uh, even though this is, this is in Greek originally. Um, but the one like a son of man has nothing to do with sons. It has nothing to do with men. It has everything to do with humanness. One that's like a human. That seems redundant, because like, yes, John, Jesus is like a human because he is a human. It's not a very profound point, you know, write like a big paper topic on it or a dissertation or something like that. It's really no shocker there, but that's not the point. And this Son of Man imagery, like I said, is coming from Daniel 7, where the humanness of the Son of Man is, is a very powerful point in that text. In Daniel 7, which is also an apocalyptic text, which lies behind a lot of the imagery that you see in Revelation, Daniel sees a vision of four monsters, these beasts, coming up out of the sea. These monsters are characterized by an unnatural mixture of various kinds of animals. So you have a lion that has the wings of an eagle. You have a leopard that has four heads and that has the wings of a bird. And the very last beast, the fourth beast, has all sorts of strange animal uh, 
pieces going on. It's all really, quite frankly, weird. But later in Daniel, we're told quite explicitly that these four monsters visually represent four oppressive empires that are fighting for world domination. We're talking about ancient Babylon and Greece and quite probably Rome and so on. And in response, God, the creator God, who's called the Ancient of Days in, in this text, who is predicted throughout the book of Daniel as the one true ruler over his creation, he sets up his throne and he sits down in judgment over these four monsters that are fighting for control over his creation. Daniel 7 says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Ding, 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 ding. That should make you think of Revelation 1. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is a courtroom scene. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne, judging these four beasts, these empires. The inhuman monster empires are then sharply contrasted when God, after taking away their dominion from them, is approached not by another misshapen beast, but by one like a human being. The Son of Man, that's the, 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 the literal language. And it's that human being that God gives the dominion over his creation. You see the contrast there? There's monsters and men. That's the kind of idea. It's so the humanness of the Son of Man is exactly the point. He's being contrasted over these beastly, inhuman empires. This is what real humanity, human living, humanizing humanity looks like. Daniel 7:13 says this, moving on, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, not the monsters, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Again, not like the monsters who just were destroyed in the passage before him. So the human, not the beasts, is given dominion over God's world, which is quite clearly, I think, reminiscent of the original creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, where humans were created by God uh, to, to carry out his wise rule in the world. And not just in the world, but over the world, and in, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, over the beasts. That's probably where this language is coming from. Do you see what, what, what Daniel's trying to turn on its head? Is that in Genesis 1, God created humans, they rule over the beasts. And here in Daniel, the beasts are ruling over the world. That's what's happening. And so God reverses it. He judges the, the monsters, the inhumans, as it were, uh, those who are acting inhumanly um, uh, or inhumanely, and he gives dominion to where it should be. Now, if, if you're new here, uh, if you're exploring Christianity for the first time, um, 
This is strange stuff. And I'm not, I'm not asking you this morning to buy into all this. Well, I am asking you, though, to, to just see the contrast that's happening, to see the provocative language that's being used and why it's being used. But the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 is not this singular individual figure that we can just put Jesus into, or that we can just draw a straight line, son of man equals Jesus, da-da, you know, that's not quite how it works. In, in Daniel 7, as I said, the monsters are, are representative of these, these empires. And so they're, they're single monsters, there's only one monster, even though it has like the four heads and all the weird stuff, it's one monster, but it's standing in for uh, uh, policies and peoples and, and even probably events and, and, and uh, whole entire kingdoms um, standing in, in in the form of this one thing. And the Son of Man figure is, is acting in the same way. The Son of Man figure isn't this one individual like, I, it's me, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the one that's like a human. That's not the idea. The Son of Man figure is representing what real true humanity that extends God's loving rule over the world is meant to be and meant to look like over against all those other things that aren't. In fact, later on in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel's given an interpretation just flat out. Uh, Daniel is told what, what the Son of Man is, and he's told the Son of Man is the saints of the Most High. That's the language that's used. That's verse 18, 25, 27. The Son of Man are the plural saints of the Most High. That's what he stands in for. So, what does all that mean for Revelation? Revelation 1. What does that mean for Jesus? To call Jesus the one like a son of man, the one like a human being. What it means is that Jesus is being depicted, first and foremost, as the one who is truly human and who is truly humane over against the dehumanizing powers that lobby for world domination or control over culture or, or whatever. And it is precisely as such that it is he that God extends his rule through. And it also means, secondly, that the crucified and risen Jesus stands as the representative of what it means for us to act and to be truly human. To follow Jesus to be more like Jesus, to be in Jesus, is not to renounce or to repress our own humanity. It is to become more truly and more freely human than we've ever been before. Amen. All of this then is expanded and intensified and then pressed to its bursting point throughout the rest of John's description of the Son of Man, of Jesus, emphasizing not only Jesus's representative humanness, but blending, this is the part that I love, that he blends that humanness in a shocking way with the very identity of God himself. And he does that over against all the other competing claimants to divinity and dominion of which there were many in John's day, and I think many in our own day today. Perhaps most visually shocking is the way that the Son of Man is described in verse 14 of, of Revelation 1. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Again, it's important to note, this is describing the one like a Son of Man, right? 
but it should sound vaguely familiar, right? The ding, 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 ding. This in Daniel 7 is not how the Son of Man is, de- is, is presented, not at all. Rather, this is how the Ancient of Days is, pre- is presented. This is how God looks in Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. John is consciously blurring the lines between Jesus and God, the truly human and the truly divine, such that our understanding of the one must be incorporated into our understanding of the other and vice versa. It's as though that John is saying that when you look at Jesus, you see right through him to God himself. And that's made nowhere clearer than the very final portion of our passage. Revelation 1, 17 to 20. When I saw him, this is John talking, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Our passage as a whole, from verse 9 all the way to the end here, actually follows a, a fairly conventional pattern in apocalyptic literature. This is, this is not at all common. What you have first is the initial vision. So the vision of the Son of Man with, with uh, this is the Son of Man and this is what he looked like. And then there's the response of the person who just saw the vision. So it, our, our, the response that we have here is John falls down as though dead. It's usually quite dramatic uh, in a response. And then lastly, there's somebody who then interprets the vision to the person that received the vision. It's usually done by by an angel or sometimes in the Old Testament by God himself uh, when he's speaking to to the person receiving this sort of vision, visionary experience. So what we have in our passage is Jesus's own interpretation of John's vision of Jesus. I mean, this is just like Jesus talking about Jesus, basically. And his interpretation of all those bizarre images, uh, whatever else they're supposed to mean, whatever else they're supposed to point to and signify, you know, the bronze feet, the face like a sun, and the voice like water, and so on. Ultimately, the point is that they visually depict Jesus as the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and who is alive forever, now holding the keys of death and Hades. That's what they're meant to to signify visually. These are some of the most exalted claims about Jesus in the entire book of Revelation. They are claims that parallel other claims made of God himself. Jesus is said to be the first and the last, where right in the very next breath, God is called the Alpha and Omega. Then at the end of the book, God is called the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning of the end, but then Jesus in the same breath is called the first and the last, the beginning of the end, and the Alpha and Omega. They share these exclusive divine titles, and they seem to share these exclusive divine prerogatives. This language, by and large, comes from the book of Isaiah, from the prophecy of Isaiah, where it is the one God, Yahweh, the God of Israel in his context, it's him who says, I am the first and I am the last. Get this, 
This is the whole point of, of saying, I'm the first and last. I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's Isaiah 44, verse 6. There's, he's the first and he's the last. There's nothing in between. Just him, all God, no one else. And then in verse 4 of chapter 41, God says this, I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am. And then finally, he says, I am. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them forth, they stand together. So when he calls, you know, stars come over here, they all line up in a row. That's the idea. That's what it means to be the first and the last. Creator, sovereign ruler, no one else. So these passages, they're set in the context of God's unique prerogatives, God's uniqueness, his godness as creator and as ruler, in contrast to, within Isaiah, all the other claimants to divinity. And yet, in Revelation, we have Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, sharing in God's own identity to such an extent that he, too, is the first and the last. It's in similar contexts that the one God is said, is said to be the living God, in the same way Jesus is said to be the one who is alive, or the living one. And in in his context in Isaiah, when, when Isaiah says that God is the living God, what he means is that he's, it, has, it has an edge to it. There's a sharp edge to that, to that statement. He's not just saying God is alive. He, he's saying that God is alive, he is a living God, in contrast to what is perceived to be these dead and lifeless idols who can't see, who can't hear, who can't create, who can't rule, who can't save. God is the living God only. All these other ones are dead. So, in conclusion, to answer our question, what do we see when we stick Jesus in this new symbolic world and pull him back out again? What's the true, the, the, the full, the, the real significance of the crucified and risen Jesus? The resurrected Jesus is depicted here as both the truly human one, representing what it means to be really and truly human over against all those other dehumanizing imposters, as well as the truly divine one, sharing in the very identity of the creator God over and against all those other false claimants to divinity and dominion. And John has done this, the book of Revelation has done this, through strange apocalyptic language and imagery that has stripped back the veil, as it were, and then invested the crucified and risen Jesus himself to be what is perceived to be his fuller, realer, truer significance. When you look at Jesus, this is what you should see. And it has then taken Jesus, excuse me, it has then taken Jesus and placed him into the middle of a symbolic world in which he is visually depicted as representing both what it means to be human and what it means to be God.